Hello, I'm Rob, and welcome to this week's special festive edition of the Black Country Talking News for the 21st of December, 2022. Hello and welcome to the Black Country Talking News, brought to you by the sight loss charity Beacons. We're pleased to confirm that the Talking News is now available via Alexa. Once you've enabled the Talking Newspapers skill, all you need to do is play Talking Newspapers and ask for the Black Country Talking News. Our Talking News service is also available via the free Wireless for the Blind app. It can be found on the Beacon Centre website www.beaconvision.org forward slash talking dash news. As a podcast via services such as Apple or Spotify or as a free CD, simply contact Beacon Centre on 01902 we hope you enjoy this week's edition. Reading this week, we have myself Rob, Christine, Angela, Ian, Liz, Helen, Mina, Simon, and of course not forgetting, Flashback Roger. In this week's edition, we have tales of Christmas past from 100 years of our newspaper archives. An update from Beacon. The quiz with Mina. Some special festive stories, where football was more than just a game. A jingle all the way section from Flashback Roger about some of our favourite seasonal sing-alongs. I look back to 2010 when the weather outside was frightful. Some Christmas crackers. And to round us off, tis the season for round-robin letters. So to help, we have an entertaining guide to navigate us through these upbeat updates. We start this week with a message. Please note that this edition of the Black Country Talking News was the last one of this year and will be returning on the 11th of January, 2023. Time now for our first block of nostalgia news, and starting this one off, we have Christine. 1921. A religious revival had swept through the fishing towns and villages of the northeast coast of Scotland, where many folk were sitting on the hillsides at night awaiting the crack of doom, and fishermen had cancelled wholesale policies on their boats. Locally and nationally, supply of turkeys was unequal to demand and prices were soaring to as much as three shillings and sixpence a pound in London, equivalent to 18p in today's money. But geese, ducks, chickens and game were more plentiful. These were times of industrial depression and there were still workhouses which joined in the festivities. At Wensfield Workhouse, for instance, the Christmas dinner was of roast beef and plum pudding, sweets and fruit. And in the evening of Christmas Day, there was cinema entertainment thanks to a link up with the Picture House and Coliseum. 1931. They played league football on Christmas Day back then and Wolves travelled to Old Trafford where they were on the receiving end of an unexpected setback in their bid for promotion, losing 3-2 against Manchester United. Attendance was a record gate for the season, 33,000. Wolves were second in the Division 2 table behind Leeds United. Manchester United were in the lower half. These two were tough times, and thanks to the generosity of Express and Star readers to the appeal by one of the columnists, Christmas toys had been distributed to poor children in the black country, as well as further afield such as Shrewsbury, Cannock and Wellington. A car carrying Father Christmas and a load of toys went to poorer parts of towns, much to the children's delight. 
At some houses, plum puddings were left. Touring round Wolverhampton in several instances in which children with ragged and threadbare clothes were seen playing in the street, the star van stopped and new clothes were taken out and fitted on the youngsters before the vehicle drove on again. If such a thing happened today, there would probably be arrests. In Shropshire, the community of St George's got an early Christmas present on December the 22nd with the opening of a bypass sparing the village from the increasing amount of traffic going along the London to Hollyhead Trunk Road. 1941. The war was on and this was probably the grimmest wartime Christmas of the lot with a series of staggering naval setbacks. In a period of just a few days, the Royal Navy lost four battleships and a battlecruiser, starting with the torpedoing of HMS Barham in the Mediterranean on November the 25th. Then, on December the 10th, HMS Prince of Wales, one of the Navy's newest battleships, along with the battlecruiser HMS Repulse, was sunk by Japanese aircraft off Malaya. There was a further disaster on December the 19th when the battleships HMS Valiant and HMS Queen Elizabeth were sunk in harbour by Italian frogmen, although in shallow water they settled on the bottom and were salvaged. Their plight and the loss of the Barham was suppressed. In the Far East, the news was uniformly bad, with Hong Kong surrendering to the Japanese on Christmas Day. Away from the war, panto audiences at the Grand Theatre in Wolverhampton were able to see someone reputed to be the oldest living stage artist in the world, 97-year-old Johnny Watson, who was appearing in Babes in the Wood in which he had a dog act. He was so old, he was said to be the only living artist to have appeared before Queen Victoria at Buckingham Palace. Over in America, Al Jennings, a reformed gunslinger who claimed to have been the fastest gun in the West, died at the age of 98 on Boxing Day. Up next, we hear from Helen, who of course has for us the Beacon update. Hi everyone, it's Helen from Beacon, back with your weekly update, our last before our volunteers and our talking news take a well-earned festive break. First this week, please don't throw away any of the stamps from any Christmas cards you might receive in the coming weeks. We can use them to raise funds to support people impacted by sight loss. You can drop them off in any of our shops or our Sedgley Centre and make a difference for people in your community. If you'd like to find out more, you can always give us a call on 01902 or email inquiries at beaconvision.org. Now, in the run-up to Christmas, we've got a campaign on social media to highlight the impact that sight loss can have on someone during the festive season. Our members have told us that some of the things they miss include not being able to see the twinkling lights on a Christmas tree or the faces of loved ones as they open gifts. We want to be able to help everyone see Christmas differently with some simple tips to make sure we can all enjoy as sight-friendly a Christmas as possible so that nobody misses out on those special moments that mean the most to us all at this time of year. We're sharing our top tips each day in the run-up to Christmas Day. Would you like to hear one now? Well, it's all about how you can make your Christmas dinner a bit easier. As you'll know, a dinner table can be really tricky to navigate if you're impacted by sight loss. So to help people make the most of any sight they have, our hospitality team are currently trialling colour contrasting plates, which are easier for people to see. You can try it at home by using your own brightly coloured plates. 
If you'd like to help us change the way we all see Christmas, a donation of £3 could support us to offer around 15 minutes of digital training, helping someone with sight loss have a more accessible Christmas this year and beyond. To donate £3, text Beacon Xmas, that's Beacon Xmas to 70085. Text cost £3 plus one standard rate message. Last this week, would you like to see what you could make possible with a career in care? Find out more about the care roles we have available at Beacon on our website, www.beaconvision.org forward slash jobs. That's it for this week. So all that remains is for me to wish you all a very Merry Christmas. Bye. Cheers that update, Helen. Liz now takes us back to 1944, where a black country resident remembers the generous folk of Wolverhampton and missed the wartime Christmas 78 years ago. Times change, but not people. Christmas Eve 1944, my father had been a prisoner of war for almost five years. He escaped from Dunkirk, then sent to Egypt, then on to Crete, where, like so many others, were taken prisoner. He left behind my mother and three very young children. We got ready to go to town, throwing a very old shoe on the fire, followed by an old cabbage leaf, hoping it would last till our return. We set off at around 4pm. My brother and I had on our freshly darned socks covering our hands. Gloves were for the rich at this time. We caught the bus for town opposite the Clifton Cinema Fallings Park and alighted in Stafford Street, then walked to the market. My mum carried a shopping basket of the time and in it one or two brown paper carrier bags. The market at that time was next to St Peter's Church with the indoor market by its side. It must have been getting on for 4.30pm when we arrived at the market. The stallholders were just beginning to close, some already doubting their paraffin lamps. We had arrived at the appointed time specified by my mum. We started to go around the market picking up the fruit and veg from the floor, which had fallen off the market stalls during the day. The stallholders never said nothing as we filled our brown paper carrier bags to the brim. Then, with mum in the lead, we made our way into the inside market hall. This too was in the throes of closing. We made our way to the man who was auctioning off the fowl. He had very few left. He looked at us and the good Lord must have whispered in his ear for he gave my mum a chicken. My mum was simply overcome for he had saved our rent money. God bless him. Back home, my mum and sister got to work on the chicken Firstly, chopping off its head, then plucking its feathers, then drawing its innards. I can still, so many years on, smell the odours of that chicken. Time for bed before the big man came. First, make sure that the galvanised bucket on the landing was empty. This served the purpose of an upstairs toilet, for it was too cold to go outside in the middle of the night. Then a quick look through the bedroom window, after you had cleaned the frost inside the window pane. All was peaceful. Next job on the eve was to hang up our long socks on the bedposts, then hope above hope the big man would not overlook us on this special night. We woke early, my brother and I. Our socks were laden with the fruit we had gathered from the floor of the market. On my pillow was a teddy bear. I was thrilled. I know it had only one eye and one arm, but I gave it a love that lasted a year, then passed it down. Through the years, I have learnt that times change, but not people. James M. Barrett, Fallings Park. Now it's time to test your knowledge, as we have the quiz questions for this edition. 
and they're brought to us by Mina. Hello and welcome to this week's Flashback Quiz. All the answers you need can be found later in Flashback Roger's Did You Know feature. But for now, here are your questions. Here we go. Question one. How old is Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer? Question two. Who wrote O Little Town of Bethlehem? Question three. We Wish You a Merry Christmas is a folk song from where? Question four. When was Deck the Halls written? Question five. Which Christmas song sold 30,000 records in 1934? And finally, question six. What was the original title of Jingle Bells? I will be back later in the show with the answers, but for now, best of luck. Just those questions, Mina. I'll get my mind working on those. Up now, however, it's another block of news. 1951, Dudley Hippodrome made history of sorts on December the 22nd when a BBC team arrived at the performance of Cinderella in the first case of a panto being televised live from a provincial theatre. These were still days of post-war rationing and it was reported that more people than ever in the West Midlands were deserting the traditional Christmas at home by the fireside with hotels and guest houses reporting the busiest Christmas rush for years. Hotels in large towns and country districts alike had been forced to turn away hundreds of applications for accommodation on Christmas Day. In Korea, there were continuing truce talks, but communist negotiators rejected United Nations pleas for an immediate exchange of sick and wounded prisoners, and the conflict dragged on. It was not until July 1953 that an armistice agreement would be signed. A young Dudley lad was making a name for himself in the world of football. Duncan Edwards had already won five junior international caps and was about to make his first appearance in a Birmingham and District Schoolboys team. 1961. It was a cold one, one of the coldest Christmases for years. With Arctic conditions, it was the coldest Yuletide spell at RAF Shawbury Met Office since it was opened in 1943, and the River Severn was frozen over long stretches for the first time since 1947, although only the swans found the ice thick enough to skate upon. On Christmas Day, the maximum temperature was freezing point and the minimum temperature minus 8 Celsius. Wolverhampton reported its coldest Christmas period for 17 years. One consequence, which is less often seen these days where so many people have central heating, is that plumbers were very busy dealing with burst pipes. In the run-up to Christmas, Shropshire's Chief Constable Douglas Osmond issued a message which is as relevant today. Don't have one for the road. It came as it seemed that 1961 might see the county suffer its highest number of road fatalities ever. 1971. Now, who were the guests on the Morecambe and Wise Christmas show broadcast on BBC One at 8pm on Christmas Day? It was one of their legendary shows with a star-studded lineup of Shirley Bassey, Glenda Jackson, Andre Previn, Francis Matthews, Patrick Moore, Michael Parkinson and Eddie Waring. Prince Philip had got in a bit of hot water, but what was new, for suggesting that people could be taxed for having babies, which he said would keep down the population. There was an almost daily dose of bad news from strife-torn Northern Ireland. 
A group of Labour MPs were calling for Tory Prime Minister Ted Heath to sack the Education Minister, one Margaret Thatcher, for her reactionary policies towards school milk and meals, direct grant schools, student unions and for the neglect of secondary school rebuilding. A local hotel, the Bear Hotel at Hodnet, reopened after alterations on December 23rd with two very special additions imported baby Malayan sun bears to mingle with the customers. Sadly, the bears both soon died, the rumour being that they died of alcohol poisoning as regulars gave them beer and food. Despite increasing sales of artificial Christmas trees, the old-fashioned needle-shedding real thing was reportedly more popular than ever, with regional provider George Wicksteed of Priest selling 2,000 compared with only 300 in 1970. Now, with the latest football news from 1973, Ian tells us the strange tale of Oxbarn FC, a Sunday league team given the red carpet by a German town when they were remarkably mistaken for the Wolves. As their battered minibus, its rusted exhaust belching fumes entered the German carnival city of Mainz, its passengers, nursing hangovers from the boozy beer keller excesses of the night before, sensed something was awry, badly awry. Posters that appeared to adorn every street stirred the first feelings of unease amongst the ragtag band of green gilled Sunday footballers. Can you believe it, said one, craning at a flyer through dirty windows. That's a coincidence. Wolves are playing here today, too. Panic, cold and skin-crawling, surfaced as the bus edged through massed ranks of chanting supporters evidently marching to the same ground where Oxbarn FC, languishing in Wolverhampton Sunday League's 7th tier, had organised a kickabout with fellow devotees of Mud and Nettles pub football. It was to be the culmination of an alcohol-drenched stag trip to celebrate the impending weddings of two Oxbarn squad members. Loud expletives of disbelief surfaced as the dented bus pulled up outside what the players believed would be their opponent's park pitch. It was the 20,000 capacity stadium in Mainz, and long ribbons of supporters were already forming outside turnstiles. The penny dropped loudly, the thud hollow and harrowing. Oxbarn, a team that plied their trade on Wenlock Avenue's uneven turf, had become the unwitting victims of football's greatest blunder, a case of mistaken identity so bizarre there were once plans to make a big-screen blockbuster about the calamity. With World Cup fever rampant, Oxbarn's story is a strange, even surreal example of the perils and pitfalls that lurk in football's basement. Oxbarn had been pitted against SVV Mainz at the time in the Bundesliga's top division, and the honed athletes of SVV Mainz believed the pot-bellied pilgrims of football at its most part-time were mighty Wolverhampton Wanderers, who had reached the UEFA Cup final the year before. They even laid on a marching band and post-match civic reception. The 1973 episode was of its time. Today, an age when social media has removed the shackles that bound overseas communication. It would not happen. Back then, Oxbarn posted a hopeful letter to the mayor of Mainz, an ancient city on the banks of the Rhine, inquiring if any local team fancied a game. Manager Ronnie Parker penned the request, starting the note, We are a team in Wolverhampton. 
the excited Mindsberger got the wrong end of the stick, translating the communication as we are the team in Wolverhampton. He believed the letter had been sent by Wolves and made lavish, hasty plans for a sporting extravaganza. The result was a football David and Goliath clash like no other, but there was to be no biblical miracle for the Oxbarn boys. They were 10-0 down at half-time and had shipped 21 goals by the time the final whistle blew. They say Germans don't have a sense of humour, Oxbarn fullback John Shorthouse said decades after the drubbing. But in the second half, the crowd began breaking into ironic cheers every time we got the ball into the other half. Actually, they cheered when we made a successful pass. Speaking from his home in the sleepy Shropshire village of Beckbury, John, nephew of Wolves legend Bill Shorthouse, once again tasted the embarrassment of those tortuous 90 minutes. The taste was still bitter. They didn't cheer much, he said matter-of-factly, and to be fair, they stopped celebrating after the 14th goal. He had a lame excuse for Oxbarn's performance. It wasn't our strongest side. Some of our best players couldn't get time off work, and we'd been on the pop the night before. John, who is sadly no longer with us, recalled the terror that engulfed the ill-prepared team minutes before kickoff. He said, We just sat in silence on the bus, watching all these people file into the ground. Then someone piped up. We're going to have to tell them. I told everyone to keep their mouths shut. They rolled out the red carpet, really gone to town. Within minutes, perhaps seconds of the start, the truth became painfully apparent to SVV Mainz and their plans. Oxpan's false hope that they may give their lofty opponents a game were mercilessly dashed. They didn't ease off. They didn't take it easy, said John. They had a towering forward called Adolf. Seriously, Adolf. Who ran rings around us. I couldn't even get close enough to kick him. He was good. God knows how many he scored, but he hit the back of the net with one bullet header from outside the box and we just watched it fly in with what was that expressions. Even the goalkeeper. It all proved too much for keeper Roger Titley, who possibly required long-term medical treatment for back injuries sustained through retrieving the ball from netting. When goal number 17 was hammered home, Roger's gallows humour surfaced. We trotted back to the centre circle and realised something was missing. The ball, John laughed. Roger had hidden it up the back of his jumper. He was just fed up with fishing it out of the net. The fans didn't get that. They didn't like that. Titley was not the only player to mentally unravel during the shambles. Quite a few of us didn't want to go out for the second half and needed a lot of persuading, said John. They were begging us, saying, you've got to do it. The post-match reception, featuring a lot of guests in a lot of gilt civic chains, did little to restore black country pride after a 21-0 loss. John admitted Oxbarn players sued the pain of the ceaseless punishment they'd received through alcohol. Lots of alcohol. Some were rolling drunk. Tell you what, John winked, we beat them at the drinking game, hands down. Those Mainz players couldn't hold their booze, probably because they were professional athletes. Mind you, one of our lads was sick on the bus. I remember standing swaying at a banquet table, heaving with food, and looking at these huge ham hocks that were piled up. I was wondering if you were supposed to take the whole thing or cut pieces off. This German defender, built like an outhouse, strode over, picked up a hock, slammed it on my plate, looked me in the eye and said, Eat, eat it all. I ate it all. Up now we have another edition of our festive favourite. It's the Christmas Cracker. Hello, I'm Mina and here's your Christmas Cracker joke to get you in that festive mood. Knock, knock. Who's there? Honda. Honda who? <laughs> oh, God. <laughs> On the first day of Christmas my true love sent to me. 
Knock, knock. Who's there? Anna. Anna who? Anna Partridge in a pear tree. <laughs> How do Christmas trees get ready for a night out? They spruce up. Ooh, uh. What kind of music do elves like best? Rap music. Why did Santa get a parking ticket on Christmas? He left his sleigh in a snow parking zone. Well, ho, ho, ho! What do they sing at a snowman's birthday party? <laughs> Freeze a jolly good fellow. <laughs> Who is never hungry at Christmas? The turkey. He's always stuffed. <laughs> You're listening to the Black Country Talking News. And now we have our final block of news for this edition. 1981, that thing you've been dreaming of, just like the ones we used to know. Yes, it was a white Christmas. Now, we can't give you exact local details, but information from the Met Office confirms there was a widespread white Christmas across the UK, including in the Midlands, with only southwest England and Northern Ireland missing out. In any event, the region had seen the coldest December since 1890, with a combination of cold and snow not exceeded since 1878, and there would be more to come in the new year, with Edgmond seeing the lowest temperature ever recorded in England of minus 26.1 Celsius, that's minus 15 Fahrenheit, on January 10, 1982. Just before Christmas, there was a terrible disaster when the eight-strong crew of Cornwall's Penley lifeboat died in trying to rescue the crew of the cargo vessel, the Union Star, which was in difficulty in terrible conditions. All eight on the Union Star also perished. The Princess of Wales, rapidly becoming a fashion icon, set the fashion accessory business in a spin by wearing a Dr. Shivago-style coat, burgundy leather boots and furry muff on a snowy royal visit. Santa was spotted being put through the test with many playful tugs of his beard as he did the rounds at all local hospitals, taking orders for what the children wanted for Christmas. And after Christmas came the sales, including a sale lunch at regional department store Rackham's, of all for just £1.50, soup or fruit juice, salad with ham, cheese or egg and a hot jacket potato, fresh cream trifle and a Rackham's coffee with cream to round it off. 1991. The Soviet Union passed into history. The bloc collapsed with 11 of the former Soviet republics establishing the Commonwealth of Independent States. On Christmas Day, Mikhail Gorbachev announced his resignation as president of the Soviet Union and made a farewell speech. On the domestic financial front, the pound hit its lowest level since Britain joined the European exchange rate mechanism, which was a sort of preliminary step on the journey to the euro. Although Britain pulled out of the ERM in 1992 and never did join the euro, the interest rate in the UK was running at 10.5%. Local church leaders united to criticise a deplorable increase in Sunday trading and called on the government to step in and penalise those who try to flout the law. It should be a day of relaxation and a special day for worship, they said. 2001. 
Pop superstar Robbie Williams celebrated a double Christmas triumph, beating off a spirited challenge from pub crooner Gordon Haskell to claim the coveted Christmas number one spot with Something Stupid, in which he was accompanied by Nicole Kidman. Robbie also held on to the top spot in the album chart with Swing When You're Winning. Only Fools and Horses, the classic BBC One comedy series, was the clear winner in the Christmas ratings war. Unofficial estimates pointed to 20.3 million viewers tuning in to see the return after five years away of Del Boy and Rodney, compared with 12 million attracted by ITV One's top programme, The Soap Coronation Street. There was a wave of last-minute panic buying of Christmas presents, with 9,000 people walking through the door of Telford Shopping Centre in the first 15 minutes of trading on Christmas Eve. Meanwhile, Harry Potter author J.K. Rowling was reported to have conjured up the conclusion to her world-beating series of books about the teenage wizard. 2011. Queues of bargain hunters formed outside neck shops in Telford and Wolverhampton from well before dawn on Boxing Day, which was a Monday. And, in a sign of changing times, Argos, John Lewis and Marks and Spencer were among stores which had started their sales online as early as Christmas Eve. The Duchess of Cambridge was the centre of attention as thousands watched members of the royal family attend the Christmas church service at Sandringham, with police saying scenes were reminiscent of Diana days. It was Kate's first Christmas as a member of the royal family. Less happily, in his most serious health scare to date, Prince Philip spent Christmas in Papworth Hospital near Cambridge, being treated for a blocked coronary artery, but was said by Buckingham Palace to be in good spirits. Christmas Day was unseasonably mild, with temperatures across the country ranging from 9 degrees centigrade at Carter House in the Scottish Borders to as high as 14.5 degrees centigrade in Aberdeen, making it close to the warmest Christmas day on record. That was 15.6 degrees centigrade, or 60 degrees Fahrenheit, recorded on December 25th in both 1896 and 1920. Up now, it's trivia time. Brought to us by Flashback Roger and his Did You Know feature. Hello again everyone. Well with Christmas now upon us I've been thinking about Christmas songs and carols so here are a few points of interest about the background of some of our perennial favourites. Now then, did you know that... Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer was born out of a department store marketing assignment. Defunct Chicago-based department store Montgomery Ward wanted to pass out free colouring books to children during the holiday shopping season of 1939. Copywriter Robert L. May was tasked with writing a poem to go in the booklets. It was ten years later in 1949 that the poem was set to the now familiar music. And Our Little Town of Bethlehem was written by Boston minister Philip Brooks, who spent the Christmas of 1866 in Bethlehem. Inspired by his pilgrimage, he wrote the poem Our Little Town of Bethlehem in 1868 for the Sunday school at his parish of Boston, USA. In England, Our Little Town of Bethlehem is better known to the tune called Forest Green. <coughs> we Wish You a Merry Christmas is a folk carol from the West Country. It was sung by carolers or mummers as they were called in the 19th century. Children who sang carols from door to door, expecting treats in return, such as Christmas pudding, which has often contained sweet ingredients like figs. 
Dick the Halls is a Welsh New Year carol dating from the 16th century, its Welsh title being Nos Galan. The song gained popularity after it was published in John Thomas's Welsh Melodies of 1862. However, there were English lyrics which were an attempt to translate the Welsh, rather than a new poem altogether. What the two texts have in common, though, is a goodly quantity of fa-la-la-la-la's. Santa Claus is Coming to Town. It's a well-used Christmas song written by J. Fred Coots and Haven Gillespie. The earliest known recorded version of the song was sung by banjoist Harry Resser and his band on October the 24th, 1934. It became an instant hit, with orders for 500,000 copies of sheet music and more than 30,000 records sold within 24 hours. And Jingle Bells has its root in America too. Legend says that the song made its debut in 1850 in Medford, Massachusetts, and it was composed by James Lord Pierpoint, who was a native of the town, and he wanted to write something to commemorate the town's annual sleigh rides around Thanksgiving. He published the song in 1857 under the title One Horse Open Sleigh. Well then, I hope that a few of you are prompted to burst into song by this week's festive offering. If not, then I'm sure that you will sometime over the holiday. No doubt I will when I've been lubricated enough, I expect. Any road up, look, I'm off now for the last time this year, but I'll be back on the 11th of January. So for now, I wish you all a very, very Merry Christmas and a Happy New Year. Ta-ra a bit. Ta-ra! Over to Mina now, with a special edition of this week's weather as we head back to a rare white Christmas in the black country. Flashback to 2010, a rare white Christmas in the black country. It was the coldest December since nationwide records began 100 years earlier, going down in history as one to remember. But good gloves, stout boots and a flask of tea were all the hardy workers of the black country needed to carry on their duties despite wintry weather. Snow couldn't stop the region's milkmen, postal workers, deliverers and repair staff from getting the job done. The harsh weather was caused by unusually high air pressure that blocked mild westerly winds and brought cold air south from the Arctic. The winter of 2010 saw the earliest widespread of winter snowfall since 1993, with the first flakes falling as early as November the 24th in some parts of the country. The snow also created picture postcard scenes and many of the animals at West Midland Safari and Leisure Park and Dudley Zoo were loving it. The seven strong herd of reindeer at the safari park, including Rudolph, Blitzen and Donna, looked right at home and Buster the white tiger rolled in the snow. As well as being the coldest December on record, it was also the coldest month in England and Wales since February 1986, the coldest in Scotland since February 1947, and in Northern Ireland it was the coldest on record. The average temperature for December was 1 Celsius, which was significantly colder than the long-term average of 4.2 Celsius. The month was cold and snowy, but it was also relatively dry and sunny, the Met Office said. Analysis showed it was the third
third driest December since records began in 1910, with just 38% of the expected rain falling during the month and the third sunniest in series of records dating back to 1929. Well, that sounds like hats and gloves weather to me. Up now, we're a football feature from Ian about the legendary Christmas Day kickabout in 1914. The Christmas Day truce of the Great War in 1914, when in some parts of the line the guns fell silent and British and German soldiers climbed out of the trenches to chat, share cigarettes and have a kickabout in no man's land, is famous as a moment of humanity amid the horror. Local historians Richard Pursehouse and Ben Cunliffe have researched the part soldiers from the North Staffordshire Regiment and South Staffordshire Regiment, which will have included many from the West Midlands and the Black Country, played in that brief oasis of peace on the Western Front. Local regional newspapers shortly after Christmas 1914 ran stories, both general and specific, says Richard. One reported, both parties sang carols and at several points Old Lang Syne was sung. The Huns, however, spoiled the tone of the proceedings by exultingly declaring that they would win the war and take their next Christmas dinner in London and Paris. The Staffordshire Advertiser, dated February 27th, 1915, ran a story under the headline, Played the Germans at Football. It included an interview with drummer Arthur E. Salt of the 1st North Staffordshire Regiment. It quoted him as saying, We gave them a 24-hour armistice on Christmas Day. Of course, during the day we paid compliments and had a sing-song. They said they would sooner be in London or anywhere except where they were. Well, we had a football contest and England won 2-1. We parted on best of terms and at night started on our usual game as butchers of war. Richard says the same newspaper, dated December the 31st, 1914, had run a story from a different part of the front about a Midlands-based football player, Gunner Herbert Smart, serving in the 5th Battery Royal Field Artillery, who had written home about the interchange of courtesies between British and Germans on Christmas Day. The Germans had a Christmas tree in the trenches and Chinese lanterns along the top of a parapet. Gunner Smart had written... Come over, said one German soldier, I want to speak to you. We didn't know how to take it at first, but one of us went over, and as no harm befell him, others followed. But our commanding officer would not let more than three at a time go. I went out myself on Christmas Day and exchanged some cigarettes for cigars. The soldier I met had been a waiter in London and could use our language a little. He says they do not want to fight. An unnamed officer in the South Staffords, writing home to his wife in Penn, Wolverhampton, told how on Boxing Day, he and a fellow officer walked down to the trenches the regiment were about to occupy. He added, it was very funny yesterday, Christmas Day. The soldiers showed themselves over the top of their trenches, which are only 50 yards off, and held their hands up and then got on top of the trench and sent men out halfway towards our lines. After this, a few of us thought it would be just as well to shake hands and exchange cigarettes with them. We called them and met a few halfway between the trenches. They put down the cigars on the ground and they were jolly good sports too. One fellow found a top hat and frock coat and he was dancing about in it. On Christmas Day, we had a football out in front of the trenches and asked them to send a team to play us. But either they considered the ground too hard, as it had been freezing all night, and was a ploughed field, or else their officers put the bar up. One of our side went out and they shook his hand and said, Let us have a day off, as it is Christmas, and we won't do any shooting, and told our people they could go out and bury their dead and they wouldn't shoot. Many of those who took part in, or witnessed the truce, were destined to join the dead. 
In a last letter completed just two days before he was shot dead, King's Shropshire Light Infantry Officer Captain Robert Patrick Miles, who was 35 and attached to the Royal Irish Rifles, described the events. Friday, Christmas Day. We are having the most extraordinary Christmas Day imaginable. A sort of unarranged and quite unauthorised but perfectly understood and scrupulously observed truce exists between us and our friends in front. The funny thing is it only seems to exist in this part of the battle line. On our right and left we can hear them all firing away as cheerfully as ever. He wrote that he was disappointed to see that there were a cheery lot of fellows. I had hoped to see a collection of living skeletons half covered with rags, animated toast racks in uniforms. They are distinctly bored with the war and do not seem to have been impressed by the famous hymn of hate that we read with so much glee in the Daily Mail. In fact, one of them wanted to know what on earth we were doing here fighting them. In Captain Miles' sector, the truce continued on Boxing Day. They simply disregard all our warnings to get down from off their parapet, so things are at a deadlock. We can't shoot them in cold blood. I cannot see how we can get them to return to business. When three British artillery shells landed on the German trench, I'm dashed if a couple of them didn't come over and complain about it. Didn't seem to think it was playing the game at all. The letter ended on December the 28th, 1914. Captain Miles was shot dead while he stood giving orders in the trenches on December the 30th. Richard says depending on the positions of the trenches, some of the truces continued for several days and even weeks. Many generals on both sides in the main thought it was madness to fraternise on Christmas Day and beyond. The men and officers who shared cigarettes, cigars, chocolate, bread, schnapps or strong navy rum also exchanged addresses and regimental buttons from their coats and tunics. They sang Silent Night across no man's land to each other, to the same tune but in their own languages. They reflected on where the true madness lay, behind the lines in the general's chateau. Have you done any good at the quiz this week? Well, now's the time to find out, as we have the quiz answers. Hello, and here are your answers for this week's flashback quiz. Feeling confident? How will you score? Let's see. Question one. How old is Rudolph the red-nosed reindeer? And the answer here is... 73, as the first publication of Rudolph was in 1949. Question two. Who wrote O Little Town of Bethlehem? And the answer here is Philip Brooks. Question three. We Wish You a Merry Christmas is a folk song from where? And the answer here is the West Country. Question four. When was Deck the Halls written? And the answer here, of course, is a 16th century Welsh carol, but not published until 1862. Question five. Which Christmas song sold 30,000 records in 1934? And the answer? Santa Claus is coming to town. And finally, question six. What was the original title of Jingle Bells? And the answer here is One Horse, One Sleigh. How did you get on? Did you get them all right? 
If not, not to worry, as I will be back in the new year to test you once again with more flashback quizzes. Bye for now. Thanks, Mina. Up next, we're a feature from the Talking News Federation. There's often more than meets the eye in these seasonal round-robin letters that accompany our Christmas cards. Here, Soundings contributor Colin gives a light-hearted translation guide for what may lie behind these apparently upbeat family stories. TNF Soundings. Features from across the UK. Hello, I'm Colin. Does your heart sink when you receive a round robin in a Christmas card? Have you ever considered what these family updates really mean? Well, this may interest you. Cunningly concealed within greetings cards, out they come fluttering double-sided sheets of A4, charting all this year's neighbourhood news from the arrival of Keith's new shed to updates on how Jean is getting on with her titanium hip. This much maligned yet still widespread phenomenon took off during the 1980s, when home computers were introduced to the world. Suddenly, every amateur scribe could become a backroom publishing magnate, able to type up an annual family news roundup, printing multiple copies and tucking them inside their Christmas cards. As software and IT skills became more sophisticated, creative types even started incorporating photographs into the text. Up popped pictures of graduation ceremonies, fairy tale weddings, and purple faced newborn babies. These festive bulletins are then sent out to everyone on the Christmas card list, ranging from cousins or close friends who have moved abroad to total strangers met briefly on holiday or at a conference. But as the content of the average round robin letter is narrow in scope, they often read like a blend of faux-casual bragging about holidays, home improvements and career success, seasoned with minutiae involving pets, neighbourly disputes and physical ailments, not forgetting a generous dollop of showing off about high-achieving children and darling grandchildren, in whom, if we're honest, nobody outside the family is terribly interested. Yes, the round robin will soon come bob-bob-bobbing along your garden path in the postman's bag. But don't despair, because, as seasoned seasonal bulletin receivers will know, there's often more to these news blasts than meets the eye. Guessing the truth behind the upbeat tone and unsubtle boasting can take the fun of receiving a round robin to a whole new level. Here's a translation guide to things that people write in their round-robin letters, and what they really mean. Dear friend, Dear person I met once, many moons ago, who will now receive these updates for the rest of eternity. Ben's having a great time at university, and made lots of friends. We haven't heard from Ben since we dropped him off at his halls of residence in September. The garden is looking beautiful. The garden is looking better than John and Alison's next door. We were lucky enough to receive a windfall from a distant aunt. We were hoping she'd leave us more, to be honest. Caro has taken to motherhood 
effortlessly. Caro has turned into a zombie who self-medicates with Sauvignon Blanc on the stroke of 6pm. The grandchildren are doing well at school. The grandchildren are utterly average in their abilities. We had an idyllic holiday in the Seychelles, two weeks of blissful relaxation. I was so bored. We are already looking forward to next year's holiday. We wanted to show off about that too. Joshy the Labrador is getting old now, but he's still full of life. Joshy the Labrador sleeps most of the day and is beginning to smell. We are hoping to take a cruise. We've got nothing left to say to each other, so we want to start mingling with total strangers. Sophie's A-level results were a source of pride. We paid for Sophie to have extra tuition after she fell in with a bad crowd and began binge drinking in the park. Lotta won a medal at the school sports day. Lotta attends one of those schools where they don't believe in competitive sport, so everyone gets a medal. We had a glorious golden wedding anniversary celebration. You weren't invited. The new conservatory is a fabulous addition. It's ice cold in winter, sweltering in summer, takes all of the kitchen's light, but it cost a bomb, so we're pretending to like it. Sebastian has travelled extensively on his gap year, most recently in India. Sebastian is a work-shy embarrassment who's smoking something illegal on a beach in Goa. Our new next-door neighbours are quite the characters. We're in a bitter dispute over their loud parties and outdoor hot tub. Amelia managed four A's and three A-stars in her GCSEs, though she was disappointed by the C in biology. Amelia's pushy parents were disappointed by the C in biology because they wanted her to be a surgeon. Enclosed are some photos of our safari trip in Kenya. Enclosed are some photos lifted off the internet because all of ours were blurry. I'm keeping busy with charity work. Mary is organising tea and cake sessions with her friends. Our much-loved cat, Mr. Snuggles, sadly passed away, but the grandchildren helped us hold a sweet funeral service in the garden. The vet's bill for cremation would have been extortionate. Hope you and yours are well. I can't remember your children's names. We must catch up next year. We'll never see each other again. TNF Soundings
So that's it for another edition of the Black Country Talking News. A reminder to our CD listeners who have received CDs in padded envelopes that you don't need to send anything back to us. If you have a sight loss tip or someone you would like to wish happy birthday to, just say hello to. Maybe even a poem or talking book you would like reviewed, then please get in touch with us at the Beacon Centre. Call 01902 880 Email bctn at beaconvision.org or write to us at the Black Country Talking News, Beacon, Wolverhampton Road East, Wolverhampton, WV4 6AZ. We look forward to hearing from you. Thank you for listening and thank you to all our supporters, donators and volunteers who without their support will be unable to run this free service. Please note the information and views expressed in this recording does not necessarily represent the views of Beacon or Talking News and were accurate at the time of recording. Mentions of goods and services does not imply endorsement and whilst every care is taken to supply accurate information, Beacon and Talking News do not undertake liability for any errors. So it's goodbye from all of us, stay safe, have a good week and we look forward to bringing you next week's edition of the Black Country Talking News. Ta-ra!